0: I'm Elizabeth Stark. And I'm Angie Powers. And this is The The Storymakers Storymakers Show.
1: Storymakers. Today we sat down with San Francisco-based journalist Heather Berner, and she's the author of Positively Negative, Love, Pregnancy, and Science's Surprising Victory over HIV. Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, The San Francisco Chronicle, and elsewhere. Follow her on Twitter at at Heather and that's
0: B-O-E-R-N-E-R. And it would be awesome if you would review Storymaker's Show in iTunes or Stitcher so that folks who'd enjoy these talks with authors, filmmakers, and other story creators can find us. Show notes and back episodes are available at storymakersshow.com. Enjoy the show. So great to have you on our podcast, Heather. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. And so, so far, we've talked to um, novelists and filmmakers. I think that's primarily been, and so you are, I think, our first journalist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I kind of wanted to start there with the kind of the word story and what that means. You went to the Columbia J School and, and before that studied journalism at Santa Cruz. So what does this word story mean in the world of journalism and then for you specifically?
2: Well, I mean, I started, I'm trying to think of where to start. I I started in journalism and newspapers. And so story was not important. Facts were important. It was basically the assumption was people weren't going to read more than two or three paragraphs. So you had to cram everything important at the top. And so we did. And so that makes for very inelegant writing, very short sentences. The assumption is that the readers are have fifth grade reading levels. So you just short words, short sentences. It was good for me in that it cut out all my, you know, all the adverbs, all the like unnecessary words. And it really taught me how to write, I hope, pretty cleanly so that the writing style wasn't so flowery that it got in the way of um, people following the story. But really, I mean, I got into journalism, as I remember being at, on UC Santa Cruz's campus and thinking about what I was gonna do. And, I realized that I wanted to write every day. That was my goal. Like, I didn't get into it because I wanted to interview people. I was actually terrified of strangers. So it was a very strange field for me <laughs> to go into, but um, I just wanted to write every day and, um, And I always wanted, like, I always wrote fiction. I wrote poetry when I was a little kid. I wrote books, like horrible books that were like modeled after Sweet Valley High, you know, things like that. And they were very much all about what the main characters owned. You know what I mean? Like this car, this dress, this whatever. Um, But I always wanted to write and I wanted to tell stories and, um, and Daily newspaper journalism is not designed for that. And so I always joke that like I always I said I wanted to write every day, but I should have been more specific, you know, that I wanted to write I wanted to write something narrative. I wanted to take readers on a journey. And my biggest struggle in newspapers was that there's this, I don't know if I don't know if this is used elsewhere in writing, but in journalism, like there's this idea of a nut graph, which is like your second paragraph that says, here's everything you're gonna learn in this story be prepared, you know? And I always loved reading like the New Yorker and things like that, where like, basically you start reading and the assumption is I'm gonna take you on a journey and I'm not gonna explain to you where we're going, you're gonna trust me, right? And so it was very hard for me to break that habit of like, let me just take you on a journey. And they're like, no, 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 slow down, back up, tell us everything that's going to happen. And it's a good way to organize your thinking. So, you know, here are the most important things that are gonna be in the story, but... Um, it wasn't um, it. It wasn't really what I uh, wanted to do long term, and so part of the reason I went freelance ten years ago was because I wanted to write narratively, and I got some chance to do that writing. Um, like, long, longer features for, like, the Sunday paper, but that's very rare, and it still wasn't really narrative. You weren't following one character from beginning to end. You were just, like, having more space to explain it. So, um, so yeah, take, it's taken me a long time to get to where I actually wanted to be, but, you know, a lot of people never get to where they want to be,
0: so. And I, I think writing every day is fantastic. I mean, I left, I went to UC Santa Cruz just before you, and I, when I left, I thought, why didn't I study journalism if I want to write every day? <laughs> because yeah. Once you're out of school, you know, that is a kind of a practical way to support yourself and write. And yeah, and you know, I was
2: thinking about it before we, we got on the line, like how would I explain my story? And the truth is, you know, I... um wanted to be a fiction writer, but a was scared of criticism. So I never took a, a fiction writing class because I'd heard that people get torn apart and, um, B I come from like, my parents are professional class, but you know, my grandfather on one side was a plumber grandfather on the other side was in construction, you know, working class people, you do not become an artist. You know, you get a job that pays your bills and you do what you like on the side. And so I found a way to combine those two to do what I like and also earn a living. And that's why I went into
1: journalism. Well, it also seems that the trajectory of nonfiction has also shifted. So the kinds of writing that we now consider nonfiction, you know, I was thinking of, um, gosh, what's his name? Uh, Far From the Tree. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you're Solomon. Yeah, (laughs) Andrew Solomon. Solomon. You're still looking at a narrative component that talks about, you know, individual families within the context of a statistical um, backdrop. So statistically, this is the kind of thing that happens. And here's now an individual experience within that. And um, it seems like
0: that shift has been kind of. I don't know it, it, yeah. what, what shifts do you say I mean there must have been so many shifts from when you started in the like sort of what like in the late 90s or mid mid to late 90s yeah. um, so much has changed how has it changed like the writing part
2: well I think that you know when I was in school the writing that I admired was like John McPhee who's long form you know and um Tom Wolfe and um, Joan Didion, you know, I read Slouching Towards Bethlehem and was like, oh my God, I want to do that, you know? And, you know, she had one of her stories is Dreamers of the Golden Dream, which is a story about a murder that takes place in San, uh, San Bernardino, California, which is right next door to where I grew up in Riverside. And she just described, like, I was there, you know what I mean? And I was like, oh, This is, this is what I want to do. So this thread has always been there is I guess what I'm trying to say, Uh, you know, that people have been, they called it the new journalism when I was in college, you know, in the sixties, you know, there was this idea that it was this blurring of the lines um, and, you know, in cold blood and all of that. But, um, you know, I, I don't know that I have the perspective to give like the, how the industry has fully changed one what i can say though is that i think in the last five years probably uh the idea of long-form journalism has really come back like they're calling it long form now they used to just call them features it's the same thing um And I'm glad, you know, and it's interesting because when the Internet first started being the primary place where things were printed or printed, you know, uh, were published, people started saying, oh, it's the death of long form. It's the death of people won't read online, all of that stuff. And basically, like I remember starting freelancing and being told that here's how you write online. Short sentences, short paragraphs, which is basically what I learned at newspapers. So it wasn't hard, but also it has to be voicey and engaging, and you know, like kind of uh, scannable, scannable, like uh, yeah, sections, yeah, yeah, bullet points. You know, like I wrote a lot of when I was first freelancing. I wrote a lot of pieces for like Yahoo Hot Jobs, and they were all like five hundred word pieces with three bullet points. Here's what you do to get a job. Here's what you do to fix your resume. Blah 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 and that's what people thought writing for the internet would be and what it turns out is that a lot of people found no actually people will stick with stories long term online and there are all these new newer publications now about um that publish exclusively long form and it's uh it's really it's reassuring to me you know
1: which which also sort of brings the question you just well not just but you have your book um the, it's like about 50 pages right? Yeah, it's, right? it's a non short, yeah. It's short, but it's, it's, it's a long form.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, it's long form. It's definitely long form. I mean, you talk about the, the process of, of sort of deciding to do that and how to get it into the world and or, you know all of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: So the book Positively Negative started out I had been pitching this story around since probably 2011 about this couple who had unprotected sex, even though the guy in the straight couple had HIV. And it blew my mind when I talked to this couple. I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Because, you know, I grew up with, you know, people dying left and right Mm -hmm. uh, with AIDS and um you know, it had been very fully ingrained in my brain to be terrified of HIV and to never have sex without a condom, right? If you're going to have sex, straight sex, you'd never have sex without a condom. And um, so this just blew my mind. And I was like, everybody has to know about this. But I think it was a little too far ahead of its time. People were not, it didn't fit an existing narrative. And I, what I found is that in journalism, if it doesn't fit an existing narrative, they don't know what to do with it and they don't buy it. So I had been pitching it, pitching it for years. And then in 2012, the FDA approved this drug Truvada for HIV prevention. Um, And I thought, now's my time. People are gonna be writing about it. And the truth is like just now people are writing about it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. so I was wrong about that. There was plenty of time, but I was like, I gotta do it. (laughs) Um, And so I, actually pitched the piece to um, an editor at an online publication associated with a print publication. I don't want to say who they are just because they kind of screwed me over, so I don't want to. No reason to burn bridges, but um, I pitched it to them and they said, great, we like it. We'll run it. We will pay you a hundred dollars for it.
1: Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
2: so, <laughs> I yeah, take that coffee. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can, um, you know, maybe pay your utility bill with that amount of money. <laughs> and they said it can be as long as you want because it's online. I was like, okay, great. And I actually decided it was actually a gift in disguise because if they had said, great, we will pay you a dollar a word and you have 4,000 words, I would have been like, absolutely. 4,000 words it is, you know, and that's what I would have written. it would have been a very different story, but because they weren't paying me anything essentially. And, um, yeah, essentially because they weren't paying me anything, I decided, well, I'm going to write this exactly how I want to write it. It's going to be as long as I want it to be. And I'll turn it in when it's done. Like I didn't stick to any particular deadline with it. I just let it go. And I worked on it at night and on weekends because, I had to earn money, you know, I had to earn money aside from that. So I didn't, um, it wasn't my top priority, but I loved working on it. I loved it. And kind of slowly through the process, the story evolved from being about this one couple to this, what I felt like was a strange, um, synchronicity between this one couple that just had unprotected sex, had a baby, no problem. No one got HIV to juxtaposing it with this other couple who, met a little bit, got together a little bit later than the first couple, but they had nothing but trouble getting pregnant and they wouldn't have unprotected sex. They were so terrified. And you know, it it made sense to me and they they couldn't get pregnant and they couldn't get pregnant. And she asked for Truvada to protect herself so she could have unprotected sex with her husband. And her doctor not only said no, but said, if you do this, I will not be your doctor you know, like just horrifying, like, I mean, their story was just like this narrative arc of like up and down, up and down. I was just like, what's going to happen next? You know, and I
0: realized this is is happening, right? And this is happening. I mean, you're this is that story which is all now in the, the book Yeah, is unfolding as you're researching it is that what you're saying no
2: actually it, it had already happened okay. uh-huh. um the daughter she was pregnant the second couple was pregnant when i did the first interviews uh-huh. and now the daughter is like two yeah. so um but what i had to do was what i did was recreated it i asked them and this is what I always tell people about this. Like when writers want to know how to do this is like, not every source can be the subject of a narrative book because not every subject remembers everything. Their memory is unreliable and everyone's memory is unreliable, but you know, some people have better recall than others. And not everyone speaks in stories. Like this woman was like the perfect source because she remembered everything. She could walk me through. I felt like this when I walked in and then I sat down on this place and then I felt this and then he said that and I got so upset and this is how I felt. And, you know, and she just could recreate it for me. And, you know, it's, it's not newspaper journalism. So, so I had to trust her on some of it, you know, Yeah, but it's, fact as far as I could confirm, right? Um, And so that's how it started was like, these things started to evolve. And then I pulled in the piece of the research where I realized, wait a minute, what was actually happening in the science when these couples are having doors slammed in their face? And what I realized what was happening was the research was being done to prove that this was safe. And it wasn't translating from the researchers to the clinic, you know, and I was just like, I mean, I got really upset on behalf of the couples. I got really upset that they were being shamed and um, stigmatized and told no when really actually the science showed that it was okay. Mm -hmm. You know, so so I pulled in those three pieces and I wrote it and it took me a long time to finish it. And I finally finished the draft and I turned it in in early 2013 and the editor said, Oh, uh, I know I said this could be as long as you want, but it's too long. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, I will have our long form editor read it. And hopefully he can help us figure out where to cut it. I was like, great. Didn't hear from Didn't hear from him. I checked in with him every month to try to confirm, like, what's going on. And finally, after three months, I think in March, he said, all right, long form editor is not going to have time to read this. Uh, so if you can cut 2,000 words out of it, we will run it. Uh, And I was like, no way, man, because in this time, it had become my favorite thing I'd ever written, you know, it had become like, this is what I want to do. This makes me so happy. And I just couldn't, I wasn't willing to cut it unsupervised, you know, like I feel like long-form really needs good editors. Mm -hmm. And they were clearly not investing anything in not only this piece, but basically their online work you know so I thought about it and I went back to them and I said I'm gonna pitch this around to a few other places if I decide to publish it myself will you run an excerpt and they said yeah so um, I pitched it a bunch of places every place was interested um, which was reassuring you know because all I knew was that I loved it I didn't know if anyone else would like it And they all were interested, but one place wanted to take one of the couples out and just have one couple. One place wanted it again to be shorter. Another place told me, it's a great story, but A, it's too long and B, it needs to be about more than it's about. Like it needs to have this subtext. And I thought, I think you're missing it. Like, I think that it's there. You know? Um, and so I just kept getting like, and every step of the way was an opportunity for me to decide how committed am I to this particular story as opposed to a getting paid and b, um, yeah, just getting it out there. What is my commitment? And every step of the way I had to really stop and think and I went slowly and I realized, no, this is the story that I need to tell. Mm -hmm. And I, so I decided I would self publish it. So we have this like amazing new world, right? Where long form articles can be published and um, without needing a gatekeeper. So, and you know, I am self-employed and I don't have a ton of money. So I was like, I can't fund this myself. So I did an Indiegogo campaign and um, raised the money to have it edited and, laid out and fact-checked and all of that stuff and um and so it came out in July of 2014 yeah July 2014 and so it's like two years after the FDA approved Truvada for PrEP for prevention and um yeah so that's that's the story that's how how it happened
0: how has that been? I mean, how has it, has it, has, have you reached an audience? What have you what have done post publication? you know, how's that part? Yeah. Well, I mean,
2: it's been an interesting experience because it's not like it's, it hasn't flown off the shelves, you know, it, it remains a passion project of mine. Um, but it's a very specific audience. And I, again, I think that the idea that it doesn't fit into an existing narrative has kind of limited it because people think of HIV and they think of gay men for obvious reasons. And um, the idea that straight people are affected
1: or that women in particular, straight women are affected. Um, of course, it's ironic about that is that that is a completely U.S. perspective. Like if you right. were in Africa, there wouldn't there wouldn't be that association in the same way. If you were in other locations where HIV is a challenge, it's it's not located in a, in a marginalized community. It's part of what a large right. It's,
2: it's young community. women young straight women who are getting HIV. And so it is a very U.S. perspective. And, you know, my story is a U.S. story. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I thought was interesting, part of the reason I was interested in it wasn't just because it was about HIV. In fact, it wasn't primarily because it was about HIV. It was primarily because it was about these couples' desire to have children, which I felt like... Even my friends who have had um, like tubal ligation, so they never have to have children, have women have at some point in their life had to think, am I having children, right? Mm -hmm. That was, I thought, universal. And that I thought was um, the thing that could link in everyone. That I thought if women could give themselves, sorry, I hope you don't hear that buzzer, but um, (laughs) my laundry's done. Oh good. Uh, Working at home. So um, I, uh, I thought if I could, if people could suspend their disbelief long enough just to start reading it, they would probably relate to these couples. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is that people don't suspend their disbelief. And so what I found is the people who have found it need this story. You know, that, for instance, when I did the Indiegogo campaign, someone contributed, like I had, you have all these different perks that you give people, right? And one of them I thought no one would do, but um, this woman gave me $200 so she could speak to me on the phone. And I thought that was hilarious because I speak to people on the phone all the time for free. But um, I was thrilled, of course, and I spoke to her and it turned out she was located in Japan with her husband. Her husband had acquired HIV. And um, she wanted to have a child and no one, she had no one to talk to.
1: Hmm.
2: Wow. So what we, what we know now, the CDC just came out, I think last month with a report saying that basically almost as many straight women as gay men could benefit from Truvada, which means that there are almost as many straight women as gay men who need to hear a story about prevention and about their options, you know, and sorry.
0: Yeah, no, just yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. And so there is actually a larger audience for this. I think that the where I had a limited vision and if I were to update this story, I would make this change is that the real group that's at, in, in need of this story are African American women.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And my story is two straight white couples. And so that's a that's a limitation of my story. But What
0: about the woman at the end?
2: yeah no she's uh she's white
0: oh interesting yeah she's married
2: to a black man but she's white and um so there's a whole other layer to that and so so to answer your first question, the reaction to it from the people who need it has been really um, effusive and strong and it feels like it has contributed something. And even for the couple that use Truvada to have their baby, I, I use a pseudonym for them in the book, Poppy and Ted. The publication of the book changed their lives, changed their lives in a way that I'm super grateful to have been a part of that they You know, the husband's not out to anyone about having HIV. That's why they're anonymous in the book. And... He felt in doing the promotion of the book, I did Twitter chats and um, I did all sorts of stuff for it. And he like kind of lurked in the background of these Twitter chats. And and I texted with Poppy afterwards. I said, how was it for you? And she said, oh, my husband texted me and said, we should tell everyone, you know, and they did not And that's fine. But, you know, it seems to be breaking some of the stigma and shame for these couples. And I think if it doesn't do anything else, it's fine. Yeah. Of course, I want everyone to read it. And I think that if people gave it a chance that they would relate to it. But, you know, can't control that. <laughs> um, and the other thing that happened after the publication of the book was that in order to promote it, I started writing articles for newspapers so that at the end they would say, their burner is the author of Positively Negative. You know, so I started writing. I wrote a story for The Washington Post about. Um, Truvada. I did a story. I've done several stories now for the Daily Beast that are primarily around HIV, most of them, not all of them. And um, I wrote a story for a New Jersey newspaper about women and HIV and um, And that has changed my career in a way that I hadn't expected, you know, and I wouldn't have done those things if I hadn't written this book. I wouldn't because, you know, newspapers don't pay very well. And if I'm going to support myself, I I don't go after newspapers. But it has, you know, given me legitimacy and eyes of people that I didn't know had those biases, you know, um, and that's been good for my career. So I'm grateful for that. And it's allowed me to keep writing about this subject in ways I didn't expect. You know, if I had done it as an article, it would have been an article and I would have moved on that was published online, you know, but because I published it as a book, it has become, it has become my beat in a way that I didn't have a beat before I was just writing about health in general. Mm-hmm. I don't write anything, and I still will write anything anyone will pay me for, pretty much. But um, but it's given me like a passion that I didn't have before, which has been really lovely.
0: Are you going to do more long form writing?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was this is the template for me going forward of what I want to do. Um, it's a matter of finding places that you know want what I have to. Say, right, that I want what I have to um, share. And so I'm working on a piece, hopefully, if I can make myself do it, you know, like the resistance is there, but um, I'm working on a piece on femme, on fem identity, and how fem is a questioning of, you know, sexism in a way that people don't acknowledge. I mean, I know you know all about this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's been really fun. And the challenge is to write that as a narrative, you know, instead of just like, I've interviewed all these different people. And the problem is the piece is only 2000 words long, so it's not really long enough, but I started thinking like, this is something I could do a book on. I could do a narrative book mm-hmm. on them, And not only like, cause I feel like I have a certain perspective as a white middle-class woman, but there are all sorts of different experiences of them that I don't think get enough attention. And so, um, I interviewed these, this amazing woman, this African-American lesbian who, um, she, she coined this term that would probably be the, I will all suggest it as the headline, which is freedom in the margins, that the further you are from the subject, the center of power, the more, the less power you have, but the more freedom you have to express yourself and more freedom from basically like, not to get to Women's Studies 101, but like uh, the the more freedom you have from like those patriarchal expectations, you know? When you're not the feminine ideal, which is one thing which none of us live up to, once, like, that's, this is the power of femme, right? That when you're a femme, like, you already fail. Like, you're, you're, you have sex with women, so you fail. You are not a real woman. Um, but once you fail, you're like, great, I can do whatever I want, you know? <laughs> and she just articulated it brilliantly. Oops, sorry, I pressed the button. Um, she articulated it brilliantly, and I want to write about her, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. if she would let me, you know? And, um... So, yeah, that's that's where the narrative is right now, but it's really a matter... What I found in doing Positively Negative was that these stories don't come along all the time and you don't... You can't turn everything into a narrative. So... I'm just kind of trying to keep my eyes open for things that have the potential to be a narrative. Um, people who are good subjects for a narrative, people who have a compelling enough story that like pulls you along through it rather than like, cause if I have to force it, it's not going to work, you know? Cause you can't, you can't write around that. You can't like, I couldn't, I could be the best writer in the world and I couldn't write around that. Um, if the story isn't compelling enough and because it's, nonfiction I can't
1: make up that piece. <laughs> yeah, you're not supposed to be doing too much writing around, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, no, like, if I could write, if I could use my imagination, the story would have been a little bit different, you know, it's funny, because in the process of doing the fact-checking for the book, um, all these things, like, because I was trying, I was working with three timelines and trying to get it all to line up, and I realized in doing the fact-checking, I got some things wrong, and really, the truth was really inconvenient for my narrative <laughs> sometimes to be a certain way and I had to like back off from that and be like, okay, this is how journalists get in trouble. They want the narrative to be so good that they sacrifice facts and you can't do that. You have to be like, okay, well, those aren't the facts so I have to move this. Mm -hmm. So it felt less powerful to me, but that's okay. You know, I had to trust the power of the real facts and of the story to carry it through. You know, like I heard her, uh, I don't know if you know, Jackie Banaszinski. She's a journalist. She won a Pulitzer in the eighties for doing a series on AIDS in the heartland. She is, uh, I basically follow her around like a puppy dog because I guess kind of want to be her when I grow up. She's so, um, She's a brilliant writer and she's so compassionate. And um, so I've seen her a couple of times. I've I've sat in on seminars for her at different conferences I've been to. And she says she said this brilliant thing the last time I saw her in April. And she said, you know, when when journalists write, they have there's a maximal story and a minimal story. The maximal story is the best version. Like, I don't know if if other sorts of writers do this, but like I start working on a story and I have a fantasy of the perfect story. If everyone says what I want and if the story actually is a certain way, that's the maximal story. The minimal story is the bare minimum you need to write something. Right. And, um, She used the example of the Rolling Stone story about rape on campus, and I have very strong opinions about that piece, but um, she said what she thinks, her opinion was, and this is my recollection, so apologies to Jackie if I get it wrong, but her perception was that what the writer did is she went into this with the idea of the maximal story and she was committed to that maximal story despite the facts. Right. And so she sacrificed her reporting, you know, the source asked her not to interview anyone else. And you can't really agree to that, you know? And so she was committed to the maximal story. And what she said was, if she had just gone with the minimal story, that would still have been a really good story. You know, and so I have to practice like humility in that because, you know, writers were grand. I don't know. I can't speak for everyone, but we're grandiose and we want, you know, fame and fortune and we want approval and we want someone to finally tell us, that we're good at this, right? Because you toil alone in a room and you're like, I think it's good. I don't know if anyone else thinks it's good, you know? And that's what I have to be committed to is telling the real story rather than the maximal story. And it's it's actually a practice I have to work on is, you know, letting the story be what it actually is. And I think that, you know, we've seen in the last few years that a lot of writers, they're too seduced or too tempted by the maximal story to surrender to the reality and
0: so i wanted to ask you if you could talk for somebody who wants to do this kind of writing and there are kind of three three parts to this question so one is um one is about pitching right like pitching and rejection I don't know if you all give them all at once, then I can come back. You can ask me to return to them. But pitching and rejection, you know, getting the jobs, assuming you know something about how to do this. The second um question is about um organizing it. Maybe, maybe it's just a two-part question. <laughs> the second question is about how you like literally in terms of like index cards or using Scrivener or whatever it is like what how do you actually take all of this research and all of these wonderful you know the people who can tell stories I love that that idea and all of that and kind of integrate it logistically like Andy Diller talks about you know walk taking a nine mile hike around a table like what is your nine mile hike so pitching rejection and organization And don't forget to unmute.
2: Yeah, I unmuted. Okay. Um, Yeah. Okay. So let's see. So pitching, pitching is um, hard for everybody. It's hard for me. And my, the way I think about it is I try to be lighthearted about it and joke about it, which my joke I make is that basically no matter what I do, 15% of my pieces sell. You know? And I always joke that like, you ha- there are so many things that have to do with the piece selling that has nothing to do with you. Like I always joke, like an editor has to be, the pitch has to arrive at the right part of the publication cycle. They have to be sitting at their desk. The light has to be hitting them the right way. They have to have the right amount of caffeine in their system. You know, like they have to have like not had a fight with their boss the day before. I don't know. Like they have to have had enough sleep, you know, all these things that have nothing to do with you that you can't control. So all you can do is just do your best. And so, I I mean, I don't pitch as much anymore as I once did. When I was newly freelance, I pitched all the time and I pitched, I actually had a goal because I was trying to build my business of pitching like 10 pieces a week. That's a lot of pitching. Um, And it was really what I was taught because I took a business planning class when I first started freelancing because, you know, no one teaches writers how to run a business. Um, I see the nods. Yeah. Um, that said uh, that taught me and really like took some of the pressure off of me. That was basically like pitching is a numbers game. If you keep pitching, you will sell pieces like, but you have to not give up before something sells. And when, as I think both of you know, I, uh, I was a business coach for journalists for a while. And, um, I would work with people who it was so hard for them to write a pitch that it had to sell in order for them to justify the time commitment to it. And what I always said to people, and it didn't really change how people felt like the feeling of anxiety and of like pressure on the piece, on the piece to sell is is not something that I think is, um, controllable with facts, but, um, what I would always say to them is pitching is part of your unpaid labor. And about half your time is spent doing stuff that you don't get paid for. It's invoicing. It's, uh, clearing your email. It's responding to people and it's, and it's pitching, it's querying. So like when you freelance, the way you pitch is you do one interview, maybe you pull in research from somewhere. And so there is an investment of time in a pitch. So you have to, um, You have to be willing to just know that, you know, if you think of that as throwing your time away, you will not be able to pitch, you know, and then you won't get. And what I try to tell people is I try to encourage them to say um, that it's not a waste of time because pitching is about doing the work you love. So like if you're lucky, like I have clients who come to me now and say, will you write this piece for me? And so I don't have to pitch them. You know, a lot of my clients just come to me and say, will you write this feature for us? I'm like, okay, you know, great. Um, but the downside, the good side of that is that for me, like I find one of my strengths is that I can, I can sort of get myself interested in just about anything. And it's a creative exercise for me. Like what's interesting about this topic. Um, but if I want to do stuff, I really care about, I have to pitch it. No one's going to pitch positively negative to me and ask me to write it. That has to come from me. So, um, the advantage of pitching is that you get to do stuff you actually like. And then the other thing that I think people struggle with, that I've seen people struggle with, with pitching is, um, they think, they think of it as marketing and they think of marketing as lying. And if you think that basically you're spending your time lying to people and you're doing something dishonest, you won't do it. So (laughs) you have to be willing to, see it in another way you have to be willing to at least pretend that that's not what you're doing and what I realized for me is that I love my work I love what I do and I love the um the stories that I write and so what I'm not I'm not trying to sell them a bill of goods. Like I think people think of pitching as like selling a used car. I'm not trying to sneak like a car problem past you, right? I'm trying to write something that I think is interesting and that might help your readers, right? Like, so the other piece of it is not thinking about it as selling this particular pitch. It's about building a relationship with an editor. It's about finding a good fit with editors. I have editors now that I've had for, you know, seven or eight years. And that's because the pitches didn't necessarily sell, but, um, they thought I was close enough to what they were looking for that they gave me a shot and they, they gave me something to write. And, um, so it's building relationships and it's, it's really about finding the right fit for your piece. So, you know, a lot of the things that I'm interested in writing about are put women at the center of what they, uh, of the story. And I find that that's a hard sell sometimes because a lot of editors are men. And even if they're not men, like that's not the priority of most publications. Like, you know, I have my little ax to grind, which is that I think that if, if I had been a man writing positively negative, it probably would have sold. Um, And also I think that, you know, I had a friend of mine read my book and blurbed it and, and he, I said, I got together for lunch with him and he's, I said, honestly, tell me what you think of it. Like, he gave me a great blurb, but what do you think? And he's like, I didn't relate. So like, there are some things that are unique to women's experiences that men just don't get. Not all men, obviously, but, um, but yeah. So my stories tend to be a hard sell. You know, and that's okay. Like that is that is what I choose to do. It They thrill me, they make me happy and I think they need to be done.
0: That's um, intense though. That's an intense kind of angle because it's not a, an obscure marginal group women. No,
2: <laughs> it's not. It's not. I mean, I pitched a story um, to a large publication and, you know, I look back at the pitch and the pitch wasn't very good. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't entirely blame the editor here, but, you know, I pitched this story that was about, the difficulty in creating woman centered HIV prevention products. So they're trying to create these things called microbicides. Doesn't that sound sexy? Um, and like multi purpose technology, which means. Um, something that can both prevent HIV and prevent pregnancy and it's really difficult because you have to maintain the the flora of the vagina right and so the minute i say the word vagina a lot of people go nope forget it right and um i pitched this story and the science is really interesting i don't totally understand the science yet but if i did the story i would understand it um and i pitched it to this guy and i think that my approach to it rubbed him the wrong way Because I think women understand, straight women understand, or women who have sex with men anyway, even if they're not straight, understand that, you know, sperm is not really, you know, it's something to be protected against. And I think that men can take that personally. And, And I, you know, it's just the way it is. And so I think that that suggestion really offended this guy.
1: Wow.
0: Wow.
2: And so it didn't sell. Now I'm going to repitch this story, and I don't know if it will sell,
1: honestly. A little little less of a killer sperm edge and more of a friendly a little more of a ph balance yeah Yeah. (laughs) happy vaggie we come full circle so we're going before with happy valley now we're in happy valley yeah exactly there's this one
2: researcher who's this woman and a lot of the research is being done by women which i find really fascinating who calls the vagina a beautiful ecosystem which i'm like oh I love you. Let's talk some more, you know? Um, and so, you know, I do know that that's, um, my stories may not sell as much as some other people's stories, but when I find the right fit, I stick with it, you know? So like I did this story recently for the daily beast on, um, Larry Kramer, who helped found ACT UP, helped found gay men's health crisis, came out in support of Truvada for HIV prevention, which was a big deal because he initially said some really rude comments about Truvada. And, you know, they came out with this statement, these uh, HIV activists uh, saying that PrEP needs to be available, Truvada needs to be available to gay men and trans women. And I was like, oh, what's happening, you know? And we talked to him and they they were very gracious and they said, oh, we made a mistake, basically. We should have included anyone who needs it. But, you know, it just shows their bias. And, and they admitted that, you know, I don't think I'm saying anything, you know, insulting there. But what I did was, because of my particular take on things, is I called a, a woman activist who has HIV and she talked about, you know, going to conferences and everything in the U.S. is about gay men and HIV. And she just feels like we're so invisible and they're them leaving us out matters because these people matter. And I thought that that was such a strong, beautiful statement. And so the story ran with a headline that basically said the HIV drug that 500,000 women need, which is like, was a small piece of the story. But I'm like, great. This is, a, this is an editor I'm going to stick with because they value this story. Yeah. So I think it's really like it's important not to try to force in terms of getting back to pitching. It's important to not try to force a story into a publication that doesn't want it because you really want to find the right fit for your stories. And if you find the right fit, those relationships can last a long time. That's
0: awesome. We are almost out of our out of time. When we have another segment, so if you say, uh, do you want to say, you want to say, like a, your one your primary piece of advice about organizing the work, yeah. The I mean, work? Basically, what I
2: did was I created a spreadsheet that had all the different timelines as I understood them, and and then what I what I do my primary method of organizing for better or worse, was to put all the notes for different people together in one in each section. So like I would move because I would interview like I re-interviewed people over and over again to try to get the facts right and to try to get more details, you know, and to fill out the narrative. And I had to um, kind of move those around. So even though they were done in different times, so that like all of Poppy's interviews were in one place, so I would, could find them. And what I did was I relied on something that I learned in newspapers, which is that when you work in a newspaper, you can turn to the person next to you and say, oh my gosh, I just got off the phone with this person and can you believe I said this? That needs to be in your story, right? So like, I just practiced this thing of like, if I were to sit down with a friend and tell them this story, what would what would the high points be? And so what I found was that all those high points were these pivotal moments, pivotal moment, pivotal moment. And that's those were the, the scenes that I knew I needed to include. Um, and I can't remember how I wrote it now. I can't remember. I think I wrote it chronologically as much as possible. Um, yeah, so that's my best tip on
0: organizing and rejection. I think I maybe covered that. I hope uh, a little bit. (laughs) Wonderfully, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we do this segment called Steal This. And the idea is, uh, I think it's T.S. Eliot said, Amateur Poets Borrow and Professional Poets Steal. So um, anything, so we share something that we've come across that we want to make our own. <laughs> anything, uh, Heather, in your wanderings, uh, readings, whatever lately that you've come across that you thought, you know, that, I want that.
2: Well, I mean, and this is a weird example, but what really came to mind as I was thinking about it is Gilmore Girls. <laughs> so I don't know if you've watched Gilmore Girls, but um, a
1: little
2: bit. <laughs> I may have been, binge watched it a few times. And what I love about what they do is there's a maturity to the emotional story. Mm-hmm. So like what I think that I'm really interested in in writing is it's not just what happens on the surface. It's like there's an emotional story. Story. there's an emotional pattern playing out that has nothing to do with the stimuli around you. Right. And so like Poppy's reaction to things wasn't necessarily about this one particular thing. It was like a larger story that she was dealing with internally. And what I think the Gilmore girls does so well and that I aspire to do, and I don't know if I do it very well yet is what I, there were the, there would be these moments where someone would have like bad news and then they would turn on the the other characters. So like Emily would like have a fight with Richard and then she would like unload on Lorelei, all this crap. Right. And, and it wouldn't make any sense. Right. But you would know because you'd seen this piece and she, they did a, just a brilliant job of illustrating really how people are. You know, and the other thing that I love and the example of how people really are is like Margaret Atwood is one of my favorite writers and I was reading Year of the Flood and what I really admire in her is that she has a capacity to make unlikable people likable. Like Mm -hmm. her real women, like in Year of the Flood, I can't remember the name of the character, but she was cranky and and unpleasant and... um, like suspicious of everyone, but man, I was on her side. Like I wanted her to win. And for me, I find myself, I'm attracted to stories in terms of writing and reading where, um, I have to root for someone. Like I couldn't finish Gone Girl. Cause those characters got worse and worse and worse as time went on. And I was just like, you know, and there's a place for that. Right. But that is not my story. I'm just not, that's not what I gravitate towards. And, Margaret Atwood, and I think that it's because those characters are realistic. So, like, women are told we need to be pleasant at all times. And so I went through this foray when I went through a breakup where I was reading a lot of fan fiction. And I love some fan fiction. But... What you find in those characters is these very immature characters who are just, they think that if they're pleasant enough, they will get what they want. And what you find in real life is that people are not pleasant and people are cranky and they are uh, unlikable in some ways and yet still likable, right? And so I find that both in Gilmore Girls and with Margaret Atwood, and I would like to be able to do that because it is so important to me that characters be likable, but if they're too likable, they're not believable you know, and, and real people aren't, you know? So I think that that complexity, that emotional complexity is, is what I want to (laughs) steal somehow insert that into
1: my writing i love that yeah i have to say i've never heard the comparison of margaret atwood and gilmore girls but i'm sure that that's not the only level they share i bet if somebody told amy sherman palladino i want to write on her uh the revamp of the show just kidding (laughs) and you want to throw one out there Well, actually i was you know i find very often that i'm sort of thrilled by our what our guests bring And today i was loving freedom in the margins Mm -hmm. like that idea but it, and as soon as you started talking about that, how we all are sort of failing gender in one way or another, um, you were talking specifically about femme. but I thought about art and how sometimes if we just, you know, we're so desirous of that positive reinforcement that we, you know, everything that we make becomes so important, but almost if like, okay, we've already failed. Like if I can just start with this project has already failed somebody, then I can loosen up and maybe do the thing that I'm more interested in doing mm. and kind of being able to say like, okay, yay failure in this other way. What is the liberation of failure? Mm. So I'm going to take that and thank you for that. <laughs>
2: well, you can thank my source. I'm going to attribute it to her and I'm, I'm upset that I don't have her name in front of me. So I apologize, but yeah. Well,
1: thank you source. And yeah. you can just source. cut that in when you get yeah. the name, I will just cut in. Thank you.
0: <laughs> uh yeah I feel really I also feel really inspired by this conversation and especially the the numbers game you know I think that's a really um that's just such an important piece and uh, you know and, and and what you talked about nobody teaches writers how to kind of run a business and you and you have to do that and you have to somehow separate the the creative part and and protect it and separate it from the other part where you're going out there and like boing 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 things are bouncing back to you right so um, I think I would like to <laughs> to steal that uh, that just the inspiration of that reminder to you know and 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 I like the numbers too you know pitching ten pieces a week I mean whatever it is I but I think I'm getting to that point where I'm I'm really trying to get things out into the world and I want to collect more rejection faster. <laughs> mm Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Heather, will you tell people how they can find you? Yeah, you can
2: find me on, I'm not on Twitter a whole lot, but I do have a Twitter handle, which is at Heather Burner, B-O-E-R-N-E-R. Let's see, the website for the book is www.hivlovewins.com. And um, the book has a Facebook page, which is a great place to find me. So just look up Positively Negative on Facebook. So those are probably the best ways to reach me.
0: Wonderful, thank you so, so much for this terrific inspirational conversation.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. It was delightful to talk to you guys.